So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, uh, we'll begin, it's halfway through verse 16 of John chapter 19, and we'll go through to verse 37. Thanks, Jackie. Good morning, everyone. In the Red Bible, it's on page 768, John chapter 19, and we are reading about the crucifixion. John chapter 19, in the Red Bible, 768. And I'm reading from B of verse 16, where the heading in the Bible is the crucifixion. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's from Psalm 22:18. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. The death of Jesus. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man 
who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It's a sad reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Folks, uh, why don't we just bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. We do pray now as we come to consider this uh, important passage that you by your spirit would be opening our minds and softening our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were a criminal and you're able to choose the method of your execution, what do you think you'd choose? Now, I'm hoping you've never had to think about that issue. (laughs) But there are a a variety of ways of executing people, aren't there? I mean, in Australia, up until after 1967, uh, we used to hang people. Uh, But there's other methods. There's electric chair, uh, lethal injections, firing squads... And then uh, there's beheadings, there's uh, stonings or being burnt alive. And yet as gruesome as some of those methods of execution are, none of them quite matches crucifixion. I don't want to uh, go into the details of how crucifixion damages uh, the victim's body. Uh, Suffice to say that crucifixion combined with the brutal whipping, the scourging, the ripping of flesh that uh, went on beforehand, was absolutely brutal. It was brutal not just because of the pain that inflicted, but because it was actually designed uh, not to just end a person's life, but to end a person's life slowly, to take several days several days before the the victim would finally give up trying to breathe or the victim would have a heart attack or experience some other physiological failure. It was brutal. And therefore it makes us wonder why it is that John in his gospel says absolutely nothing about the physical pain which Jesus endured on the cross. Uh, Take a look at this if you've got your Bibles open at John chapter 19 uh, where we read in verse 17 these words. It says, Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic, the language that the Jews spoke, is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. You see, there's no mention of the nails being hammered through his flesh. There's no mention of the open and bloody wounds 
uh, there's no mention of his struggle to breathe. There's just these four simple words saying, there they crucified him. And that's it. In fact, as we'll see in a few moments, John is really more concerned to tell us about what happened to Jesus' body after he died than what happened to Jesus' body as he died. Why would he do that? Last week we saw that the Jewish leaders had pressured the Roman governor Pilate uh, to sentence Jesus to death. And now in verse 17, Jesus is on, on, en route to the place of execution. Now, we don't know why it was called the place of the skull. Uh, some people guess that maybe it was uh, on a hill and the hill was in the shape of a, of a skull. But uh, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that Jesus was crucified on a hill. Sometimes we call it Calvary, which again is not a biblical term. That's just the Latin word for skull. But what we do know is that Jesus, uh, like others before him, was forced to carry the, uh, the crossbeam of the crucifix on his back to the place of execution. Whereas John so succinctly states, there they crucified him. But he wasn't alone, was he? There were two other criminals who were executed on that day. And so that's the scene. Three men hanging on crosses. Uh, crosses which were most likely just high enough off the ground so that their feet didn't touch the ground, uh, unlike the popular image of uh, the crosses being very, very high. Now, there's a lot that John could say about what happened to, to, to Jesus on the cross, but what we see here is that he's more interested in what happened around the cross. Normally, when someone was en route to their crucifixion, they would carry uh, around their necks or someone would walk before them carrying a, a sign, a plaque, uh, which had inscribed in it or written on it uh, the, uh, the, the, the crime which the person had been convicted of. And then that plaque, that sign, was then taken and was affixed to the cross so that everybody could see. Well, here, the chief priests of the Jews, they didn't quite like what they saw. Have a look at verse 19. Pilate had prepared a notice and fastened it to the cross, saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, for Pilate, this was just revenge, not on Jesus, but revenge on the Jewish leaders who, at the trial, had sinfully declared that Caesar was their only king. And here Pilate is saying, no, 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 no. Here is your king. Here is your king. Hanging on a cross. Which is, in the greatest uh, ironic twist of history, turns out to be, in fact, true. Because what, the reason why John skips the detail of how Jesus died is because what is more important is not the how he died, but the why he died. Uh, verse 23. Uh, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares. 
one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Now, this is obviously a very depraved um, perk of the executioner's job uh, to collect and take, take home the clothes of the victim. And so here we see four soldiers, four soldiers divvying up the clothes of Jesus. Maybe one is getting the outer robe and maybe one's getting the belt, one's getting the sandals, one's getting the head covering. But then there is the undergarment, as, which was a, a long, a lengthy and a seamless piece of fabric, more valuable intact than in four separate pieces. So they gambled for it. Now, friends, think about this. Jesus is hanging on a cross in the process of dying for the sins of the world. And yet John, in his account, zeroes in on what's happening to his clothes. I mean, who cares? Do you care about that? I, I couldn't care less about what was happening to Jesus. In the context, I couldn't care less about what was happening to Jesus' clothes, except for one thing. This happened, says John, in verse 24, that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments that the scripture would be fulfilled. What scripture is he talking about? Well, in Psalm 22, uh, King David lamented that he was despised and he was mocked by his enemies. In Psalm 22, King David lamented that evil men had pierced his hands and his feet and that they had divided his clothes and cast lots for his clothes. As he also cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so suddenly the dividing up of Jesus' clothes, the casting lots for his robe, becomes a whole lot more significant. For it is a prophecy which was fulfilled in Jesus. Now in John's Gospel, the... Uh, the closer the story gets to the crucifixion and to his death on the cross, the more John points out the fulfilment of Scripture. Now, all of Jesus' life and ministry was in the plan of God, but this is particularly helpful because what it does is it tells us that his, his death was not a victory of evil, but rather that it was always the intention of God. Right throughout the scriptures, God's intention was that Jesus should die. Now, this is a pathetic scene of soldiers divvying up the clothes. And yet in verses 25 to 27, the lack of humanity of the four Roman soldiers is starkly contrasted with the humanity of four loving women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. Humanity which was only eclipsed 
by that of Jesus himself, who, despite his agony, despite his pain, speaks to a disciple who was nearby and entrusts to that disciple the ongoing care of his mother. A disciple who was mysteriously described as being the one Jesus loved, who later on in chapter 21, right at the end of the gospel, we see that his identity is revealed as being John himself. Now this, friends, is very important. Because what it means is that what we have here in this account in John 19 and the details of John 19, it's not just hearsay. This is an eyewitness account. This is an eyewitness account of someone who was close enough to the cross for Jesus to actually have a, to speak to him. But speaking would become more difficult for Jesus. For part of the torture of crucifixion was dehydration. Can you imagine that you had been uh, scourged with a, uh, with, a, with a violent whip, uh, that you had been beaten and bashed, that you'd had a crown of thorns shoved on your head, that uh, you are now nailed and hanging to a cross and you've been there for hours under the cruel Judean sun? In Psalm 22, David wrote about having all of his strength dried up. He wrote of his tongue being stuck to the root of his mouth. And in Psalm 69, he tells of his enemies giving him vinegar to drink. Now, Jesus had resisted every single temptation which Satan had thrown upon him for him to walk away from the cross, for him to avoid the cross. And now as he hangs from the cross, what it means is he's, he's made it. He's made it to the finish line. He has resisted temptation and he has been obedient to his father, even unto death on a cross. Verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, that is Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had finished, received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, wine vinegar, uh, that's, uh, basically that's the cheap, uh, very sour wine that Roman soldiers drunk. Uh, the uh, Romans called it posca. Uh, it was, I guess, the clean skin of the ancient world. But Jesus wasn't asking for a drink so as to prolong his life. No, he knew that by declaring his thirst that the soldiers would fulfill the psalm by giving him vinegar to drink. 
and then with his throat moistened, could call out loudly, it says in the other Gospels, could call out loudly so that everyone could hear the words, it is finished. As he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, on a Roman crucifix, about halfway down the the vertical pole, there was actually a small seat attached to the pole. A a small seat which would help the victim to to push downwards with his legs in order to raise up his body so as to take the pressure off his lungs and allow him to breathe. A small seat, how about that? It wasn't for his comfort. No, it was actually a cruel exploitation of the survival instinct to give him hope and to continue to prolong the process of dying. How did Jesus give up his spirit? Well, perhaps he just stopped pushing down with his legs. Or maybe there was more to it. We don't know. But the issue is who is in control. I want you to listen, if you wouldn't mind, to what Jesus said about his life when he was talking to his disciples back in John chapter 10. Listen to this. He says about his life, No one takes it from me, but I lay it, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, um, <clears throat> friends who work in hospitals tell me that there are some days of the week where it's more convenient if you just don't die on those days, um, like on weekends or on public holidays. Or in Judea, uh, it's really not convenient if you go and get yourself crucified on the day before the Sabbath, especially during Passover week. And the reason for that is because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, 23, uh, it says in the law of Moses that if a corpse is left hanging from a tree or hanging from a pole uh, overnight, then the, the land would become ceremonially defiled, would become unclean. And so here's the problem. What if uh, any one of these three victims happened to die the next day on the Sabbath? There's a problem. There's a problem for these hypocritical Jews because, well, what, what is it that you can't do on the Sabbath? You can't work on the Sabbath, can you? So you can't pull the, the corpse down from the cross on the Sabbath and you can't arrange for the burial of the corpse on the Sabbath. And if you can't do those and the corpse is left hanging on the cross overnight, then the land is going to become ceremonially defiled. Dreadful. Never mind the fact that you're murdering the author of life. These deaths, the Jews reckon, needed some assistance. Now, apparently, archaeologists have have found the bones of a man who was crucified near Jerusalem and his legs had been smashed to pieces. An iron mallet applied by a Roman soldier to the legs 
is pretty effective in achieving that. Achieving that so that the victim could no longer use their legs, so that the victim could no longer push downwards with their legs, so that the victim could therefore no longer relieve the pressure on their lungs and would just asphyxiate and die. Verse 32. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, perhaps uh, Jesus was speared in the side by the Roman soldiers just for good measure, just to make doubly sure that he was, that he was dead. And there are medical explanations as to why water and blood would flow suddenly from Jesus' body, medical explanations which go right over the top of my head. But John's concern is not with the medical explanations. John's concern is with the theological explanation. You see, by the time that John wrote his gospel, there were some false teachers in the, in the early church who were saying that Jesus was God, sure, that's true, but he actually wasn't a man, that he only appeared to be a human, that he only looked like a human, that he only seemed to be one of us. He was God, but he wasn't truly a man. And so when he died, well, he didn't actually die as a man. In John chapter 1, remember John chapter 1, right at the very beginning of the gospel, when Jesus, John refers to Jesus as the word, what does he say about the word? He says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. In a letter which John later wrote, which is called 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4, uh, John says that anybody who teaches that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh is not from God. And in 1 John chapter 5, he says that Jesus Christ came in water, with water and with blood. Why does he say this? Well, this is important because if Jesus wasn't really flesh and blood, then he was not a substitute for us, which means that his death on the cross did not pay for our sins. Now, of course, that's rubbish, isn't it? We know it's rubbish. John knew that it was rubbish. John knew that Jesus died as a man. And see what John says about himself in verse 35. He's referring, he's speaking in the third, about someone in the third person, but he's actually speaking about himself. In verse 35, he writes, The man who saw it, that is, the man, the man who saw the, the water and the blood pouring from the side of Jesus, that man who saw that has given testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. John saw it with his own eyes. The internal fluids 
of a human corpse, of God, become man and died for us. Now, the Romans um, actually didn't like bringing down the corpses uh, too early. They preferred for a corpse to, uh, to stay on the cross for a few days after the death, uh, so as to rot and so as to become food for vultures, so as to humiliate the victim and send out a clear message about Roman authority. But that was not God's plan. Take a look at verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, uh, a, a lamb which was um, used for the Passover uh, was not to have any of its bones broken. What does that say about Jesus? The fact that his legs were not broken symbolises the fact that Jesus is our Passover lamb, that Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb who died in our place so that God's judgment would pass over us. You know, when Pilate um, wrote that sign... On the, uh, that, that uh, declared Jesus to be the king of the Jews. Did you notice that he did so in three languages? Did you pick that up? Uh, it, it was like one of, you know, those multilingual street signs that you see when you're travelling in countries where English is a second language? Uh, it was like that. Now, this was Passover, uh, which meant that uh, Jerusalem was filled with, uh, with Jews who had come from all over the Roman Empire, but it was also filled with Gentile converts, Gentiles who'd become Jews from all over the world. So in verse 20, the charge against Jesus was written in Aramaic, which was the language that the Jews spoke, which they'd brought back with them from their exile in Babylon. Uh, it was written in Latin, which was the language of the Roman army, and it was written in Greek, which was the common language, the lingua franca of the whole Roman world. What does this mean? He's covered all bases, hasn't he? It means that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you, language you speak, that everyone could read that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem would again be packed with visitors. Visitors who would hear the things of God in their own language. And Peter proclaiming that God has raised this Jesus to life as Lord and Christ, as King. Which is why, by the way, in verse 37, that the body of Jesus was pierced. Because it fulfilled another scripture. In Zechariah chapter 12, the prophet Zechariah had foretold 
of a day in the future when God himself would be pierced. And when those who pierced him would look upon him and would mourn, would mourn either in repentance or in hopeless despair. There's a sense in which we've all pierced Jesus because it was for our sins that he died. The flesh, the water, the blood was very human, very real, just as the sign above his head was very true. And friends, one day King Jesus will return And when he returns, he'll return not as a man suffering on a cross, but as a king in judgment. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. The vision that John the Elder received says this. It says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. How will you mourn when you meet Jesus? When you meet King Jesus? Will it be that mourning, that mourning over sin which is mixed with the joy of forgiveness and knowing that he is your king? That knowing that his sins paid, have been, your sins have been paid for by his death on the cross, will that be the way that you mourn when you see Jesus? Or will it be the mourning which comes from the terror of judgment? What will it be for you? If your mourning would be that of the terror of judgment, then can I encourage you, can I urge you, to put your trust in Jesus now and to turn to him as king of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the um, obedience of your son Jesus, that he loved you so much and loved us so much that he didn't fall to the temptation to abandon the cross, but rather that he saw it through until it was finished. We thank you, Father God, that he has the power to lay down his life, but the power to raise it up again, and that you have raised up Jesus as king. We thank you that he's coming again, but we do pray that each and every one of us would be prepared to meet him by having trusted in him and turned to him as our King. Amen.